The Animal Welfare Junction is part of the Keep It Humane podcast network. Visit keepithumane.com forward slash podcast network to find us and our amazing animal welfare podcast partners. Hi, and welcome to the Animal Welfare Junction. This is your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. Today, we have a very special guest from Colorado, Dr. Jeff Young, founder of Plant Pethood International. Welcome, Dr. Jeff. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, and uh, hopefully we can have some good discussions today. I think so. I think we're very like-minded individuals. But before we get started, how about you let our listeners know about you, where you started, and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, I made a lot of major changes in my life. When I went to vet school, I was a hunter and fisherman, and uh, and I, you know, my idea of a of a of a vegetable would be a tomato and a triple hamburger. Uh, and vet school taught me a lot about animals that I didn't know, and in the end, I also worked animal control, and it really changed my perspective on animals and and the planet in general. Uh, I think working animal control gave me a real perspective on cruelty and neglect. Uh, so from the beginning, at that time, when I graduated in 1989 from Colorado State University, we were killing something like 24 to 26 million animal, dogs and cats a year in this country. Uh, now we're down to anywhere from 1 million to 4 to 6 million, depending on who you want to believe. And I think a lot of animals are euthanized at, at veterinary hospitals that aren't counted because of economic euthanasia. But no question, society's become more sophisticated. We are aware of spay-neuter. Uh, but in the end, I think the number one issue with overpopulation comes back to finances more than anything else. So I think that's what's always driven me. Um, I ran a for-profit for years. We always made money, but we always were lower than everybody else. And because of the TV show, Dr. Jeff Rocky Mountain Vet, we started getting just inundated with people from all over. So at that, at that point, it's like three years ago, we became 100% nonprofit. Um, and it's been harder as a nonprofit, quite frankly, than for, as a for-profit, in all honesty, because everybody begs you all the time, you know, and you want to try to, and I'm kind of a bleeding heart liberal, I'll be honest, and I, you know, it's really hard to say no to people, you know, um, but we do our best and uh, we've moved up to Conifer, Colorado. We have, I have associated with clinics all around the world. I've been to 46 countries, lectured or done surgery in 46 countries. Um, so, and I, and I still think teaching is the most important thing. This new facility we're in is a, is basically a teaching hospital for vet students. Right now we have, uh, we've worked, I think with seven universities so far, they've sent us kids, uh, Ohio state's going to be, I just a young lady coming up from Ohio state, um, next month, I believe that's my first Ohio state, uh, person. So, but, uh, I think if I can pass on some kind of basic hands-on knowledge and get them to do some basic surgery because surgery is surgery i mean you know to get good everybody i get people come in and well, i want to be a great surgeon well it takes time you just don't become a good surgeon overnight you know some people have more talent than others but in the end it's about handling tissue and it, it, it can be repetitious as spay and neuter at some point you just realize you're a decent surgeon and i really do believe that you know and i don't know where it was for me but at this point in my career i'm not afraid of any soft tissue surgery i might do you know pdas and persistent right or arches, uh, take lung lobes out, things like that. I mean, there's virtually nothing soft tissue wise that scares me. 
Um, and that, but that just comes from years of, of practice and doing surgery, you know? Uh, so I feel very lucky and, uh, animal planet was one of those two edged swords, you know, because it, it brought all this national attention, but you know, the traditional vets don't necessarily like what I do. Uh, and having said that it, there's all these people came in from all over and we really got inundated. It was hard to keep up, but, uh, uh in the end, I've always loved what I do. And I, my goal has always been to try to help, especially like retired individuals, single moms, you know, the people in society that really need the most help. And, uh, and that's what we're open for. And hopefully we can train some more vet students and get them interested in the same thing, you know? And, and I, I'll, I will say, I think there's been a shift, I think kind of before COVID and, and kind of during COVID, most of the students were not that interested in doing low cost or nonprofit stuff. And I'm just in the last year or so, I'm having more and more students be, seem to be interested in that. And we need that. We're short, as you know, we're shorthanded. Uh, so if we can get more vets interested in doing low cost stuff and really helping out people, I think we can make a real difference. I 100% agree. And I'm so glad that you're doing the education bit because we have been doing a lot of mentorships and externships as well, because you have to give these students like they're hungry for education, right? Like they just got into vet school. It's the perfect time to get them in and to get them excited when they, when they're real, still in the excited phase and, and yeah, teaching them what's available and what's out there. I think one of the things that, you know, I too love what I do. I love my job. There isn't one day that I, I wish I was something else. And I think part of that is that I am doing something that benefits the community and everything, but also makes me feel Absolutely. better about what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of the, the problems that we're having right now with compassion fatigue and such come about from people saying no, that they can't afford something, having to euthanize their animals because they don't have any, any money. Uh, just there, there's not that, that excitement in general practice as it has kind right. of become, right? So I think that that if we can get these students motivated and and empower them to do, you know, community service, basically, that it's going to make them feel better and potentially decrease that compassion fatigue that they're feeling. No, and I, I, th I think part of the problem is, and, and it's been a gradual thing, but veterinarians have never been necessarily rich per se, but we've always had a, made a good living and we were very well respected in the community. And I've seen that just go down the tubes in that, you know, most people say, well, just in it for the money, you know? Um, and part of that is I have to say Wall Street and I'm, I'm a red, white, and blue American. I believe in competition, but when you get Wall Street involved, you know, and, and basically something like 70% of private practices now are, is owned by big companies, you know, and the problem with that is the moment you do that, well, your, your shareholders want money, you know, and you have a tier system of bureaucrats when you still have the vets there working. So all of a sudden you have to double, triple, quadruple your price to be able to make those profit margins, you know, and, and, you know, just assume for a second they're in it for the money. And, and I understand that there's nothing wrong with making money. But at the same time, we've just gone so far overboard with it. You know, I mean, once once Wall Street figured out that vets are great investments and there's always going to be money there. Um, the question is, will there always be money there? Because we're basically pricing ourselves right out of the market, you know, and we're really catering. If you look at the last three decades, we actually serve a smaller percentage of animals in America. There's more animals in America, don't get me wrong, and vets, vets are busy, but we actually serve a smaller percentage than we ever have, you know, which makes no sense to me um, because this is the richest nature, nation on earth and we have all these talented people out there, but yet we're turning people away because they just can't afford things, you know, and it just seems to me to be criminal. 
Yeah, I have seen that as well. And it's kind of that idea of, well, we can raise the price and we're going to lose some clients, but the ones that stay are going to be able to make us money. And that's kind of a bad mentality to have. We want to help the, the many rather than the few. At least I know that I do, and, I, and I'm sure that you do as well. Like we we have this this gift of being able to help animals. So why not help as many as we can rather than limiting ourselves to six patients a day? I don't want to be so jaded to where I believe students don't care, or people, the graduates or people that are out there in practice don't care necessarily care about animals. But, you know, that's not a requirement to get in vet school. And the reality of it is, you know, we're, we're selected because we're kind of science oriented. And I kind of get that. Uh, I think the one thing that's driven compassion into the little bit of compassion that's in the veterinary industry is is when 89, my class was the first class to have more, more females than males. And as we have more and more females come into the profession, more and more compassion has come into the profession. Uh, but as you say, you know, like if, if you, so many of the main, the big facilities are owned by men or corporations, as the young women come in, they're having to send animals away or they're having to euthanize animals. And that's, you know, that just drives you. I mean, if they have any compassion at all, well, think what that does to the soul, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I understand why people get burned out or commit suicide or, you know, go turn to drugs or drinking, you know, because uh, this, this, is, this is a hard profession right now. And uh, I don't know what's kept me single, frankly, for the last 34 years, other than I just have always believed in what I'm doing, you know, and I think that's the key. You have to find something you truly believe in. And like you say, you're connecting with your community, um, you know, and you're connecting with people and, and the animals. And and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just can't imagine a better life in all honesty. Uh, there's a lot of sadness in it too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I feel like we do our part to try to make as much happiness as we can. Yeah. It's, and and it's also about surrounding ourselves by like-minding individuals, right? Because I have technicians that have been with me for a really long time because this is not a job, right? A job, right. they can get a job anywhere, but this is more like a, a mission. And everybody, we're all so tired at the end of every day. And yeah. we're doing, you know, we, we go out on our trucks, we drive about an hour and a half, two hours to these locations, do 30 to 50 surgeries, and then have the same drive back. So we are physically exhausted, but yeah. mentally yeah feeling so great about it right so i think that 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 makes all the difference in the world you know and and then we also have to pay our our employees properly because we cannot expect people to do right. this much work at, for free i mean there has to be yeah. there has to be compensation for people that are that are doing so well and doing so much um you know and and also like technician utilization. I would like to get your your thoughts on it because I utilize my technicians to the top of their license. Like they, sure. without them, I could only do maybe 10 or 15 surgeries, but with them, I can do so much. Right. So what are your thoughts on on the, kind of like the, the, the technicians that are leaving the field because they're just not utilized or well, compensated as well as they should? They're not compensated and they're burned out. Once again, they see it too. I've had a couple of te technician people uh, leave and come back because, you know, they made me make a little bit more money somewhere else, but they realize that there's no satisfaction in their job there. You know, it, it's just, right. it's, you know, it's bring an animal in, make as much money as you can and send it out and that's it, you know, and there's no purpose. Um, and I, I do think it's important to pay a livable wage. I've always said that. And, um, you know, I've always been associated with humane groups and stuff. And I've always complained about, you know, like, well, you need people come in and clean these cages and do all this work and you're paying them a dollar 95 an hour, you know, and you can't figure out why you can't keep them or, you know, why they get, they get frustrated, you know? So I, I think paying a livable wage is really important. Um, and I think letting your text 
reached out to the very end of their abilities in terms of what's legal for them in any given state. Mm -hmm. I think oh, every state is different and some states allow techs to do more, some less. But, you know, I, I believe I personally think we should have spay neuter techs. You know, I think we should be able to train mm -hmm. them. We don't have that here in Colorado. Um, but, you know, they actually I think they were talking about doing something like that. And something like over like 60 percent of the best thought it was a good idea. But then they voted it down because they were afraid of the competition, you know. Uh, but if it's still under, you know, uh, under a, a vet's supervision, you know, uh, mm -hmm. as a vet student, as a freshman in vet school, you can come in and pretty much do any surgery if I'm on the premise, you know. But if you're a tech that's worked with me for 20 years, you can't, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, you know, does that make any sense to you? And, oh, and I understand hey. why you don't unopen that whole door. But if it's just spay, neuter, you, you limit the certain things, you can make a real difference with society and make a difference in those people's lives. And I just think it's 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 better for, for our profession overall, you know. But, uh, you know, the, the yeah. powers to be no, would disagree hey. I 100% agree with that as well. And I talk about that with my technicians because I have at least two technicians that would be very willing to learn how to do space and neuters. And I know that they're very intelligent people. It's not like they went into tech school because they're they're not smart enough to go to vet school. They went into tech school because that's what they wanted to do. And right. yeah, it would be amazing if, yeah, under my supervision, under my care while I'm there, if they were allowed to to do some minor procedures, some space and neuters, sure. that way I am there. So if they get into a bind, just like a vet vet student, I have to be present for them to do surgeries. Same same kind of thing. And you know, it, I hear a lot about this competition stuff, but the number of animals that need to see a vet and need to be yes. sterilized, that right there tells you that there's not yeah. going to be any competition for a really long time. Like we need to get our minds out of the the whole competition idea and, yeah. and focus on what's important, which is the animals. Well, I, I think we talk about competition all the time, but we're the, as a profession, we're the first to try to squash it, you know, and, and make it go away because we don't really want competitions. You know, we want to have our cake and eat it too. And that's the route. They, they tried to pass a bill in Colorado that said, Dogs and cats are a special type of, of personal property, and if you malpractice, you could be, uh, you could, you could have to pay up to ten thousand dollars. I, I, you know, thought, oh, that's a good idea. It seems fair enough. And if I screw up, if it's my legitimate mistake, and the people can, you know, they have that connection. If I have to pay some money, so be it. You know, um, man, the vet profession came out. They squished that so fast. You know, at the same time, the same people, eight, ten. I had a, had a cat come in that was quoted twenty thousand dollars for an explorer. Um, you know, I had a, it was a, I did an anal gland removal that was quoted 8,000 for an anal gland removal. I mean, just crazy, you know, so like if we are that worth that much, if you screw up, why shouldn't you have to pay that much or at least some of that, you know, right. I mean, but, but once again, we don't, we want our cake and eat it too. You know, it's like, well, in the end, they're just personal property. They have no value, you know, because they're just personal property, like a TV, which is what the law says across America, pretty mm -hmm. much, you know? Uh, and it's like, well, they're really not just personal property. They're kind of special personal property, if anything, you know, so. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm I'm currently studying uh, animal law at Lewis and Clark, a master's in animal law for not law students. And the concept of animals as living property comes up, right? Because right? there's a lot of a lot of uh, issues between animal welfare and animal rights and what's correct yes. and what's not. But yeah, it comes back to animals are just considered property in the eyes of the law, just like a TV or a microwave. Right. Yet veterinarians and technicians are very tied up into what we can and cannot do at times and the right. and the repercussions yeah. for doing something wrong. So yeah. there's a huge disconnect there as well as far as what's allowed and what's not allowed.
Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could I can work on my own TV and my own toaster if I want to. Now I might electrocute myself and die, right. but that's on me, right? And I have right. to say, technically in Colorado, you know, you can do surgery on your own animal, you know, and that's not illegal. Uh, now you may not have the drugs for it, things like that, but if you had the drugs and access to it, you could legally do it whether you knew what you're doing or not. That would be legal for you to do. Uh, and that comes over from the large animal side as much as anything, because, you know, let's face it, vets aren't doing a lot of dehorning and castrations out there on the farms anymore, you know. Uh, they have technicians and other people, just the ranchers, the owners, you know. And it's not rocket science in the end, let's face it, you know. Uh, a lot of things we do, right. um, I could pretty much teach a monkey to do, in all honesty. Now, speaking of that, we have standards of care. And I, one of the issues yes. that I have with my vet students is that everything that they want to do is gold standard of care. Right. So what are, you know, and, and we try to explain to them about, yeah, gold standard is we should be able to offer clients everything, all their options, because we should never assume what they can and cannot do or what they can and cannot afford. But right. this this idea of gold standard of care, uh, I think that it's actually creating more of a problem in animals not getting any any care or any treatment right. and making owners feel bad because they're not doing what's yeah. what they what they're being told is right for their pets. And we try to we try to guilt them into it. You know, and you're right. It's just, it's the gold standard and and the, the as you say the problem is I, look, you can take a Volkswagen or you can take a Mercedes Benz to the prom, but they both get you to the prom. And that's the point. You know, uh, I do th I do believe in informed consent. You know, when people bring an animal to me to do, you know, like my first heart surgery, I said, look, I'm not a specialist. I've never done this before. You know, it's a good chance your animal's going to die. Uh, it was a single mom with a puppy that had a, actually had a persistent aortic, aortic arch. Uh, and I did it right before Christmas. It was successful. I got a nice Christmas card from the little boy it was attached to, you know, and I got a hundred dollars for surgery, you know. So, you know, and, and, and that's and, what and it's I all about say, right there. Well, that's the point. Nothing could, you know, I mean, I would have, I, I would have you know, paid them to do it, quite frankly, you know, but yeah, uh, right. but that's informed consent. But if it would have died, you know, and it didn't, then knock on would have been pretty lucky that way. I mean, I do some pretty crazy surgeries and I, I pull them out. I've had, I've actually had a animal come out from Ohio state that was kicked in the head and, and had some bone pieces and they'd done CTs and everything else. And I just went in and pulled out all the bone pieces, put a mesh in and it, the dog's done fine ever since, you know, they recorded, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do the same thing essentially. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know, you know, like I'm going to give it my best shot. You have to understand that that's what I'm doing. Give it my best shot. I've never done this before. And that's informed consent. And I think, you know, our profession they kind of lean that way towards informed consent, but they really want to make that standard so high that, you know, I mean, the alternative is to put the animal to sleep. And I don't understand that. How's that an alternative? Or poor you know? quality of care, right? For them or to just go on care, suffering, yes. depending on yeah. what they have. Yeah. yeah. No, you, you know, if you, yeah. people take their animals home and they have to suffer slow, miserable deaths or have you know, horrible mouth infections and stuff. Like, I don't know, like how, I don't I, as an owner, I don't know how you live with that. But then I, as a veterinarian sending them out the door, I don't know how you live with that either. Yeah. And again, then that comes back to that, you know, compassion fatigue of, you know, yes. that the dog is suffering and you're sending it out the door with this rotted mouth, you know, that it can't eat or you euthanize an animal for something that's completely treatable just because the person cannot. And sometimes we have to euthanize and it doesn't mean sure. that we can fix everything, but but just making it so that euthanasia is not an option due to cost is an right. option because it is an option. It's on the yep. table. Yep. But, Under, you know, yeah. taken away. 
I've always said there's many things worse than death, and, and there are, you know. So I, I don't believe in euthanizing animals that I can fix and have a good quality of life for, and I won't do it. That's what shelters are for if they, you know, they want to take it to a kill shelter or something. But I won't, I won't do it. I just think it's unethical, you know, and I'll do my best. I mean, I'd rather have them sign an animal over to me if they want to put no money in it fix it and find it a new home. And that's what we offer people, you know, that, that are like that. Cause not everybody, not everybody likes their animals quite as much as I like mine or you like yours. And that's, you know, <laughs> and I, it's not just finances there. That's just, you know, the difference in human beings. And, and, and I, I don't, I can't say I respect it, but I don't, you know, I don't necessarily look down on those people. I just think there's something wrong with them. You know, they're, they're somewhere they got along in life. They got bent a little bit and uh, I feel sorry. You can, uh, my dog Fred means the world to me, you know. And I have to say, with seven grandchildren, if they're all hanging on the cliff and Fred was there, I'm not sure who I'd grab. <laughs> I always wonder have, sometimes. You, you have second thoughts. I know a couple of the grandkids, I might step on their fingers and let them go, you know. But that, that's another story. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that we were discussing before we started recording was as far as income requirements. Like, I don't have income requirements and you don't either. So, can you explain to our listeners why? your thoughts are on that and why you don't have income requirements yeah i've taken a lot of flack from the veterinary profession for not having income requirement but in the end the people that come to me in one sense they've put a certain value on many times they put a certain value on their animal it doesn't matter how much money you have if you're only going to spend a dollar 95 you're going to spend a dollar 95 you can be a millionaire a billionaire uh, but i also more than anything when you do have truly poor people whose animals an integral part of say their children's life or their life you know, to ha make them fill out forms uh, to prove that they're poor, to me, is just degrading. And make and it's and I don't I just don't think it's right. I think it's immoral and I think it's degrading. And I don't think you make people like that. The people like poor people make poor decisions and they get stepped on all the time in our society and they're blamed for so many ridiculous things. Um, I just don't want to be one of those people. You know, I have great compassion for for poor people and I've never been poor per se in my life but i you know other than i mean when you go to school and things like that but those that's you, you've chosen that life you know so um uh, but i've been around poverty a lot you know and uh um you know i, I don't know i just uh i don't i don't want to be that person you know to be that judgmental and 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 it goes back to just to religious point of view to some degree too you know i mean i'm, I'm a big fan of of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and uh, I just don't think it's my place to be judging people. My place is here to help help the animal, which helps the people. It's all co combined together to me. Yeah, I have, you know, I believe in the human, the importance of the human animal bond and yeah, the importance that animals have as emotional support. And I think that underserved communities, homeless individuals, just people experiencing struggles need those animals probably even more than those people who are better off like those animals are truly a source of support and companionship and who are we to tell them no you're too poor so you can't have that animal first of all second of all the shelters are overcrowded there's animal overpopulation is ridiculous so how about having them be in a home that is that where they're loved and then helping sure. support those individuals so that they're giving animals a, a good quality of life in a loving home I've had the luxury of working with Dogs Trust, which is they have a great website. You should look at Dogs Trust out of the UK um, and Cat Protection out of the UK. The Cat Protection is definitely the world's leaders in, in, in cats uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, but, you know, they in their facilities in the UK. Now, once again, they're probably worth a billion dollars on paper. So, you know, they're not like it's a cheap organization, but they have 19, 20 facilities, but they all have a vet. They all have a trainer. 
they all have a behaviorist, you know, and, and, you know, like some of our biggest humane societies in the States don't have a, a behavior or trainer and, you know, 50, something like 50% of the animals end up in shelters for behavior issues, you know? Uh, so why don't we, you know, we're just like barbarians that way. We're just behind the times, you know, if we can correct the problem and get the animal back in the same household that it came out of, why would we take it in, potentially have to euthanize it or even go through the process of finding a new home? Makes no sense to me. Uh, you know, we keep building bigger and bigger and nicer and nicer shelters. Um, but for what, you know, it's like the goal is to put yourself out of business, you know, not become, not right. become a revolving door, you know, and that's why I've always looked at you know, what I've done, you know, it's like, you know, uh, people say, well, why didn't you spay neuter all the animals? There'll be no animals, you know, like that's never going to happen, you know. It's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> you know, so, so I say, I got a lot, I got really good job security. I'm not sure of that, you know, but an underserved area is something like 77% of animals never make it to a veterinary and never see a veterinary in their life. And up to 87% are never fixed, you know, where we live in a society where something like what 90% of dogs are fixed over 90% of dogs and over 80% of cats are fixed in America that are owned, which is a really high number, but yet many of those have a litter before they're fixed and things like that. Mm -hmm. So education and, you know, the biggest reason people don't get animals fixed is, is price. It's price points, plain and simple comes back to money yeah and and it's kind of a, a combination of like affordability and then accessibility because there are people yes. that live in secluded areas in rural areas right and they just don't have they may be able to afford it but they just can't get to the vet and yep. we think about you know having to to drive two hours to get to a vet not many people are able to to do that so we have to think about you know people are not always not taking proper care of their animals because they don't want to. Sometimes they they right. literally can. We we think about like individuals that are maybe handicapped, elderly that sure. you know physically can can take them out and just being able yeah. to being able to assist them. No, that, that's a big issue. And 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 I think of the number of vet schools throughout the nation, like CSU, uh, which I think is one of the best schools you know in the world. But they send their students to Montana on the reservations, or they go down to Mexico. Well, like why not? just go over on the poor side of Colorado. You know, there's all kinds of people mm -hmm. over in small community. I go on the Eastern Plains in these small towns and set up and do 50 to 100 animals a day, you know, and there's a demand for that all the time. So like, you know, but everybody, it comes back to state boards and everybody being afraid of being sued, you know, um, and, and it's like, look, you guys should be in charge. You're leaders in this field. So instead of, you know, they have a, right now, they're connected with one of the big humane organizations. And I think it's an all hospital hospital there, but they don't do anything, you know, like they're not open on weekends at five o'clock, all the parvo animals, they kick out, they have to find places to go. If they didn't explore, they send it out. I've had three explorers go out that I know of that have died from that place because they were not, you know, followed up on and taken care of properly, you know, and that's considered a standard of care, you know, but they get away with it because they have the connections. I, I don't get it at all. And it's really disturbing to me, you know, but we should, we could do so much more in our own backyard uh, and we just don't. Yeah. I think that teaching this again, it comes back to the students. I, I don't know how much we can change the minds of people that are already out there and practicing that have gotten used to certain ways of living and practicing and stuff. But that's where I feel that, you know, helping the students learn and, and engage in community service so that they they want to give back because we we look as well as as far as back to the concept of accessibility the rural areas don't have veterinarians but i don't feel like the vet schools are getting kids that are in rural areas and it's and to me it's really simple math it's you have a kid that that grows up in a rural area 
what do they grow up to be? They grow up to be what they see. Well, there's no veterinarians around. They don't grow up working in veterinary clinics or, you know, helping with animals and doing that kind of stuff. So they don't have a role model to look up to. So those kids, I don't feel that they're necessarily applying to vet school. So the kids that are applying to vet school, do they want to graduate and then go work in rural Ohio for making less than what they can make in a corporate clinic with bonuses and everything else? The answer is no. Right. Right. So I think that we have to we have to figure out ways like think outside the box to look for ways to engage the the students and hopefully other veterinarians that are getting tired of general practice, corporate veterinary medicine to practice in these areas. And part of it is we have to figure out how to properly compensate them so that they can go to to those right. places. Um, because yeah, I mean, the, the need is great. And I just think that, you know, we there are ways of helping the veterinary shortage. You know, we have to increase the number of veterinarians and hopefully the, the ability of the technicians to do more stuff. But we also have to figure out ways to rework our current structure. No, and, you, and you're right. You do have to target, you know, find the bad areas and target those areas. You know, uh, Dr. Bushby from Mississippi State, they go out and they go to the rural environment. But, you know, that's one bus or, you know, a group of kids. And you can only do so much, you know, when you're training and stuff. And that's the reality. We need people that are like you and like me that can do the numbers and get out and try to make a difference in areas. But, you know, like there's only so many hours in a day. Right? <laughs> it's just, it seems overwhelming at times. Uh, but it's not. I mean, you know, the mere fact we're not, we're, there's probably 20 million animals a year we're not killing right now, which is a real positive thing. But, you know, you look at the top, say, 10 humane societies in America, and they're worth well over a billion dollars all combined. But how many spay and neuter clinics are we opening? You know, the, the pet industry is a $60 billion industry, and it goes up a couple billion every year. I saw obviously probably a little dip during COVID. I don't know. Um, but in the end, there's plenty of money out there. So it's not a lack of funds, you know, it's a lack of desire and a lack of, of you know thinking outside the box and, and wanting to make a difference you know um they really are trying to teach the students to come out and and follow the party line and um you know make you make your millions i guess i don't know uh I, money's a short-term motivator and i feel sorry for the kids coming out they have two or three hundred thousand dollars in debt um mm-hmm. and that has to be dealt with without a doubt but you know that that's a that's not just a veterinary thing that's across the america thing you know college just got out of control um but in the end, you know, I just feel like we can do so much more than what we're doing. Yeah. And I think that's where, again, like mentorship, uh, mentorship opportunities and teaching, like yeah. what you're doing, what what we're doing, just so that these students can graduate and be practice ready. Because a lot of these veterinary students graduate and they're mm-hmm. licensed to do surgery, but they have yeah. no idea what they're doing. No because idea. their experience yeah. with surgery is like one spay that they spend three and a half hours doing. Right? <laughs> yeah. So they... The, the, their abilities, you know, we have to to do better as far as teaching them so that they yes. can they can graduate confident and efficient. I tell all these students, doing 50 surgeries in a day is not rushing through the surgeries. No. Doing a lot of surgeries in a day is about being efficient. And being right. efficient is so good because the animals under, under anesthesia, less amount of time. Less, so yeah. they don't have as much risk with that. Their temperatures don't go down as much. Their incisions yeah. are not as big. They're not uncomfortable and then the client comes in and picks up a pet with a one centimeter incision and they're so happy to see right. it as opposed to you know you come in yeah, and pu- like actually Dr. Bush the other day was yep. yes was talking about the, the 10 centimeter incision and the 15 centimeter yep. dog yeah. Um, so being able to to learn to do that because then what we're seeing here and I don't know if you're experiencing that as well is that 
people are finding it easier to get small animals and cats and small animals fixed, but not the large dogs, especially the large female yeah. dogs, because yeah. there's not the the ability to do that. But then we have some veterinarians that are teaching people to wait until their large breed dogs are 150 pounds before they fix right. it, because if not, they're going to have orthopedic problems. So yeah. then we're telling people, let your dog get to be over 100 pounds so that you can fix it but then when it gets that big well we can't fix it anymore yeah yeah not i or, or they're too old you know i like that one is like you know be a six-year-old dog that's too old to fix it's like no it's not too old to fix and then have a power meter right now they're probably real next year you know it's like i don't so some of the stuff i've seen right. just curls my hair it's like but i also get you know when i watch some of these students say you know if it's going to take you three or four hours to do a surgery and you got to do ivs and all that kind of stuff for a routine what i would consider a routine spade should take more than 20 minutes you know on a bad day for a big dog then like i get it why they got to charge so much you know <laughs> right <laughs> not there yeah. they're losing their ass Right. No. And that's what I try to explain to people because, you know, because of how low we charge, a lot of people say, well, how are you charging this low? And my regular vet is charging a lot more. And I tell them it's all about efficiency. It's all, it's about overhead yes. as well. I have less overhead as a mobile yeah. practice than a stationary practice. But if I can do 30 surgeries, I can clearly charge less than somebody who is only doing five or six surgeries in a day. Right. And and they may not be doing only five surgeries because they don't want to do more than that is because physically they're unable to do it. So yeah, no. you know, that's where yeah. I think that the the additional training for for students, you know, if more veterinarians would take in students and teach them sure. rather than just having them come in and, you know, go do vaccines because that's all you know yeah. how to do yeah. and never really train them and empower them, then we're not gonna move ahead. Right. What now you, what you is do your... vaccines and anal glands? Right. <laughs> yeah. And the occasional ear infection. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so what is, what are your thoughts as far as age of sterilization? Like what are your requirements for age of sterilization at your clinic? I gotta have a heartbeat. That's pretty much my requirement. Now I you know, obviously I'm I'm fixed by five months. Esther Meckler is, is like a second mom to me. She's an amazing human being, and and you know she does the fix by five. They got the AVMA's on board with that, so that's for cats. All right, so that's by five months. Um, I say fixed by five. I mean five weeks in my mind. So I go down to five. <laughs> if I'm traveling to reservations, places like that, we go down to five weeks. You know, uh, pretty readily. Uh, obviously, if you have an owned animal and dealing with a client, well, it makes more sense to go through and get all the vaccines. You have the last one at 16 weeks and get them before he, they get to be five months. You know, um, I'm going to be doing a lecture real soon. I've done it in the past, but it's basically on you know. Uh, why we spay neuter, when to spay neuter, and the controversy of spay neuter, you know, and then a lot of the stuff's come out of UC Davis, as you may have read about different things, but they're really, it's very bad science. And there's a real difference between correlation versus causation. But, you know, if you look at like the Banfield study of 2013, where they did uh, 460,000 cats and what was it, 2.2 million dogs, in the end, the conclusion was fixed animals live longer. Oh, okay, fixed animals get more cancer. Well, they live longer. Humans live longer, right. they get more cancer too. You know, if you're looking, living two or three years, years longer, and when you consider it's supposed to be seven years for one, that's like 20 years longer than you're living. If you're 60 to 80, well, you're probably gonna get cancer in there, you know? So, uh, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the literature is not good science is what it boils down to. And there's probably some things that may be somewhat realistic. You know, hip dysplasia may be more of a problem with giant breed dogs. But if you look at all the specific things they name, 
it, most of it has to do with breed. You know, like if you think osteosarcoma, what's the first breed that comes to mind? A Rottweiler, you know? Well, mm -hmm. you know, it, so have we bred that gene into them to make them more susceptible to that? So instead of maybe not spaying it till it's a certain age, maybe we should figure out and breed that gene back out of it so it doesn't ever get osteosarc, you know, or make it a lot less likely. So, but, you know, we don't, we don't spend our time and energy on that, you know? So I don't know, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm still a believer in spay neuter. Every longevity study that's ever been done says that fixed animals live longer, you know, three to five years longer for cats, one to three on dogs. I'll take that every time with my dog. So, and if I have to do a knee surgery, I'm so what? I'd rather do the knee surgery right. for extra three years, you know, I'm okay with that. Oh. Yeah. And I, I interviewed Dr. Bushby for the podcast because oh. I wanted to break down all the research, all that UC Davis yeah research because that's what everybody is always like citing yeah. and we went over all the biases and everything else and I told them you know yeah I had a great day and I spayed her about five months because I wanted to do a pexy as well so I waited until she was five months old spayed her and had a pexy and she did die of an osteosarcoma however she was 13 years old so oh, yeah. you know what <laughs> exactly that's her that's a old great Dane. yes exactly and it's like you know, animals have to pass away from something. So whether they're yes. they're dying at eight or they're dying at 15, there's something there. So yeah, we have to take into consideration the correlation and causation. The other thing is that people say, oh, well, I don't want to spay or neuter my dog because it's going to get fat. You know how right. many fat dogs that are five plus years old I spay regularly? Like, oh yeah, all, all it's, the time. Yep. it's not just, you know, being, no, being intact doesn't mean that your dog's not going to get fat. And I hate to say it, we live in a country and I have people that come in that are grossly obese with a grossly obese dog. They, they clearly feed all the time. And they say, yeah, I don't want to spare because you're going to get fat. And I think, God, are you fixed? So you got spayed? You know, because I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, because in the end, there's, there's, it's real, it's real plain. It's how much exercise you get, how much food you eat. Those, are, I mean, we want the magic pill and all that. And I understand some people are more genetically prone, but I, I've coached distance running and I've had kids that come in high school that are just obese and they've worked out with me and they've lost 80 to 100 pounds in high school. And I know one kid has been out for like almost 10 years. He's still running and you, you know, like he's, he's not thin by any means, but he's not obese anymore either. He's fit, you know, and you can be thick and still be fit. You know, you don't have to be right. obese. And it's the same thing with our animals. They don't have to be obese. You know, they can be a little bit thicker. Rottweiler's going to be a little thicker, you know, than a chihuahua, you know. But, you know, I mean, we, we basically have Ottomans that come in here, like, you know, like all they are just square tables. And I mean, that's just overfeeding and no exercise, plain and simple. And that has nothing to do with being fixed. Not, you know, in, in those studies that look at being fixed, okay, what they don't do background. Okay, well, there's a difference between intact males on a chain and outside that may get fed once a day or may not. And a dog is sleeping on your bed, you know, it's getting right. extra food and table scraps, you know? So uh, a lot of it, it's our own doing, let's face it. You know, we, we like to share our food. So. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I, I always, I'll, I'll tell people we have an option, right? If we are overweight, we have an option to go to the fridge sure. and feed ourselves, but for our animals to be overweight, we do that to them. It's the whole killing them with, with love, you know, because yeah, yeah it's, it's, this morning I was eating and my cat is like right in my face asking me for, for food. Yep. And sadly for my cats, I have a very, like, I, I don't give in. <laughs> so they yes. just, uh, you know, they don't get, they don't get table scraps. So my cats were uh, spayed, neutered. I have a boy and a girl and they were done very, very early on and they're not overweight. They're not obese. Because yeah, no. it, their weight is is managed, but I also, you know, they get they exercise within the house and that kind of stuff. Like right. we have to, 
we have to I don't know, do do better by them rather than looking for the for yes. the easy fix or the or the easy quick pill, right? I've always had fixed animals, and none of my animals are overweight. My, you know, you can look at my golden Fred, and he goes out for two, three, four hour hikes with with Petra, Doctor Petra, all the time. I mean, you know, and he gets fed really well, but we just don't overfeed him. You know, we make sure he gets the proper exercise, and it's it's not rocket science, you know. Um, but everybody wants the easy fix, and there's no easy fix. Well, at least not yet that I'm aware of. Right. So what are going to be the, the most common things that you see at your practice that, that come in? Uh, we do a lot of knees, a lot of FHOs, but, you know, spay-neuter, we have our spay-neuter day every Wednesday. We do spay-neuter pretty much every day, but that's our spay-neuter day period. But we do, right now, because we're 30 minutes outside of Denver, we're not down down in Denver anymore, Um we're getting a lot of explorers, a lot of splenectomies, you know, that because they're being quoted once again, eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars. And you know, we top out at two thousand. Uh, and a lot of times less we're on a sliding scale, you know. So um, so sometimes we do them for nothing, but we don't tell people that. <laughs> but you know, so you know, we're yeah, and that's the point. You can start out a certain you can't raise your price, but you can only start high and come down, you know, but you can't start at the bottom and go, well, well, how much can you do afford? You know, can you get another quarter, right. number, you know. Uh, so a lot of times it is kind of shaking quarters out of people, you know, because as a nonprofit, my goal is for us to make enough money to make our payroll at least. You know, that's always been my goal to make our payroll. And if we do extra things in terms of going out to a small community and doing extra spay neuter or going to reservations or sending suture overseas, that comes from the extra money from people that donate to us, you know. Uh, and we have great fans that follow us and that, that give us money. So that that's always good, um, you know, but. Once again, we were around for 30, 30 years as a for-profit and a very profitable for-profit, I might add. You know, we did really well. Um, switching over to, to a nonprofit was kind of a, a decision I made because of the TV show as much as anything. And, and, I, and I can't say it's been a great decision, good it, one way or the other. Uh, just it is what it is. It's like we're, we're working just as hard as we ever have. And uh, money's tight all the time. But part of that was with COVID and increasing people's pay and those those kind of things, you know, so. As you mentioned, as far as payroll, being able to make payroll, like that's our biggest expense, right? Because we invest in our yeah. people. So yeah. we, you know, one of the one of the issues that we were discussing before we started recording was as far as you know, technicians and and assistants from other veterinary clinics that come to yeah. see us because they cannot afford care at their place. And my thoughts on that are always: Are they not being paid enough, right? Because then they yes. they they should be able to afford whatever the place is or is the place charging too much? Like, or, yeah. or is it both? Uh, because I'm, I'm, I would, I'm happy to say that my technicians, all my employees, they would be able to afford even without a discount, the, the right. cost that I charge for their, for their pets. I understand. Yeah. I've had people that I've fired, and brought their animals to me because they, you know, it's like, can we please see my dog? And he's this problem, you know, because they've been quoted because they know we do a good job. They know what we do, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then that's a big part of it. I agree. I mean, they, um, plus, I don't know. I, I just find it weird that it maybe it's a corporate thing, but like yeah, it's someone that works for you. So do you got to charge them at all? I mean, maybe right. cover your costs. I get that, you know, like, and, and we're a nonprofit. So, you know, if I do something, say, well, you know, like what's the cost of the blood work? You know, if it costs us 20 mm -hmm. bucks, can you pay the 20 bucks, you know? Right. And we're not going to charge you 40 bucks or whatever, you know, and I would never count my time. If I'm doing a surgery for one of my, one of the people that works for me or a close friend, I never count my time. You know, I just, uh, I don't do it. So uh, we try to make things reasonable for the people that we care about and that, that care about us, I guess is the point. Yeah, exactly. We want to take care of each other because I, I, I see a lot of, a lot of articles and stuff saying, 
your your coworkers are not your family. Get that out of your mind. But I do see yeah. my coworkers as my family, right? I see them no. as my kids, and I got to take care of them. And and they kind of in in return, they kind of take care of me, right? We're like we yeah. all take care of each other. So I'm not here to to profit off my staff. I mean, I don't I don't profit off any one person that I serve. So why would yeah. I even profit off my staff? I understand. I agree with you 110. percent is there anything that you would tell, you know, either young veterinarians, new graduates, or uh, veterinary students? What kind of words of wisdom would you would you tell them when we have so many people leaving the profession? I think more than anything, that money is a short term motivator, and there's you're only limited by your imagination. I think so many people are, are afraid to start up their own business, you know. But uh, I'm real proud of so many of the vets. Almost every vet that's worked for me that's left and started their own practice because they've learned so much while they're here and they feel confident doing it. So, I mean, to me, that's uh, that's saying something because it's probably a good, you know, 15 people that I can think of that start practices in different states or, you know, a couple in Colorado. Um, so that really means something to me. So I think, you know, I think uh, reaching out to main organizations, you know, depending on where you're from. Uh, and I think trying to come out to Plan Peter National, come out to Colorado, we'll teach you stuff, you know I mean? Be willing to learn, keep an open mind, and realize you can make a decent living without having to screw over anybody over. You know, uh, enjoy enjoy what you do. I love working with the animals. I love working with people. You know, and I, I just I think there's so much out there that can be done. And uh, you know, I, I, once you get in that corporate mode, you don't see it. You can't see the forest for the trees. What did you get in the profession for? You know, if you just want money, I'm okay with that. We'll get a corporate job. If you want to make a difference in people's lives and animals' lives, you've got to refocus and and broaden your horizons. And we have to be okay with the people, right? Like, because so many people yeah. say, I want to work with animals because I don't like people. If you don't like yeah. people, forget it. Because no. the animal doesn't yeah. bring itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not since the Dr. <laughs> Doolittle, Rick Saracen movie, no. where the animals just brought themselves. Like, we have to <laughs> take care of the people. Um, so, yeah, this has been amazing this has probably been the most fun interview that i have done so far since i started this podcast so i i just really want to thank you for for being here i want to thank you for doing what you do because i mean we are on the same wavelength we are halfway different areas of the uh of the country but kind of doing the same thing so thank you so very much all the best of luck thank you and to And to everybody that's listening, I hope that you got some good information about what we discussed here. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for caring about animals. And if you want to come down to Mexico sometime, do one of our big spay neuter clinics, you're welcome. We've got a beautiful place down there. And, uh, you know, you get down there, we house you and take care of you. Fantastic. I may take you up on that. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeff. Thank you.